Please have that passage open in front of you in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're looking at friends and foes in the ministry tonight. And as I said, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 15. And these final verses, as this letter comes to a close, are the last words that Paul would write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there is a, a sense of sadness in them at some of the people and situations that have arisen in Paul's life, but also there are great encouragements as well. And the troubles that Paul faced are the same type of struggles that so many pastors and leaders and churches continue to face. And so it's an incredibly relevant passage. And sometimes when it seems a little disjointed where, you know, it is though the letter is just being brought to an end, we can overlook some of the details that are there. And one of the main lessons that we, we find in this, in our text, is that gospel ministry is bound up in people and in dealing with people. And we cannot serve the Lord effectively alone. It's when we're able to depend upon other brothers and sisters and delegate and serve with co-workers for the gospel that we will know more effectiveness in our Christian lives. And it's clear that Paul invested his life in people. And many of these people were engaged in the work with him and many were dependable and responsible and trustworthy and committed and eager to serve alongside him. They were faithful friends. But there are also those who have proved unfaithful and inconsistent and untrustworthy, those who never really gave themselves to the work, and at worst, those who were enemies. And so facing execution, knowing that his time on this earth was short, people are on his heart and his mind. And friends, Christian ministry, serving the Lord, living for the eternal good and benefit of others, is relationally hard. Dealing with people is tough. And we are real people too. And it's interesting because all the way through these letters to Timothy, Paul has been seeking to strengthen Timothy, to build him up, to encourage him. But these verses show that actually Paul needs support. And Paul needs encouragement. Because Paul, the mighty Paul, uh, the great servant of God, was still just a man. As one explains, it reminds us that though the pastor's responsibility is to look after the church, the church also has a responsibility to look after the pastor, and the Lord will hold them to account for that. And often those who serve in the ministry, those who are in responsibility, those who are pastors, elders, those leaders, are those who are most aware of their own frailties and failures. I remember being at one pastor's conference a number of years ago, and along uh, serving pastor stood up to describe some of his experience. And I remember that he said this. He said that good pastors have thin skins. You know, sometimes, you know, it's meant to be that pastors have thick skins and you can throw whatever you want at them and they'll be able to take it. But he said, actually, good pastors have thin skins and they feel things deeply because that means that they're able to feel for others in their care and they're able to understand. And here we have all these elements in what Paul is writing and we have a, a picture of the Lord's people coming together in mutual ministry and depending upon each other and delegating to each other and working together. But the reality is that sometimes this is damaged and disrupted by unfaithful people. And that's just the way that it is in gospel ministry. 
And there is great blessing when we are able to serve with those around us who share our heart and our passion to serve the Lord. And there is, there is great joy in laboring for the gospel together. And in fact, our greatest fulfillment and joy comes in the Lord and serving his cause together. It's a wonderful privilege. It's a great thing. And so Paul introduces us to some of those who have served with him in that way, as well as those who are a hindrance to the work. And as we go through some of these characters, I want you to ask yourself and consider, where would you be? If Paul was writing about you, what would he say about you? Who are you like? Who do you want to be like by God's grace? And so he, he highlights a number of characters. And the first one is Timothy in verse 9. Timothy himself, when he says, be diligent to come to me quickly. Timothy is the focus of his letter, and Timothy is so precious to him. He's a son in the faith. And Paul trusted Timothy. And when there was trouble in the churches, such as at Corinth, he sent Timothy because he knew they were of one mind in the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 4, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Same in Philippians 2, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, but you know Timothy's proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And so to receive Timothy was like receiving Paul. In heart, in theology, in care, in ministry, he was a faithful son. And there, Paul's in the dungeon, he's facing death, and he longs to see his brother, his close friend Timothy. And no doubt he wanted to spend time with him face to face, discussing the leadership role in the church that Timothy would take up. He wanted so much to see Timothy. Now, of course, there were other believers around Paul, which was good, but sometimes there are those close relationships that the Lord gives, and so it was here. And Paul is also aware, as he writes, that if Timothy doesn't come soon, they would not see each other this side of glory. And so there's an urgency. That's why he says, be diligent. Literally make every effort to come quickly. Time is a factor. And for Paul, also he knows that when winter comes, travel would be impossible for Timothy because the seas get rough and all those sorts of things. So Timothy needed to come soon. I think it's interesting when you see that relationship and when you look through church history and even now, you see that many men that are used of the Lord in ministry are usually linked to a mentor. Someone who has influenced them, someone who has invested time in them and they, they want to emulate them. And so for Timothy, it was Paul. For Paul, his son in the faith was Timothy. And the Lord had drawn their lives together and by grace, they had been a strength to each other. And that's why those discipling relationships within a church are so important and so rich. We long to see more of it. Brothers and sisters learning from each other and growing in grace and serving the Lord together. And friends, we also need to pray that the Lord would give us a generation of Timothys to nurture and train. Committed to the gospel and devoted to serving Christ who can catch the vision and commit to living to the glory of God no matter the cost. We need that new generation and we need to pray for it. 
And so Timothy, dear to Paul's heart, faithful. But then you have a contrast, verse 10, Demas. And he says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. That's interesting, that little word for links it in with what he's just said. It's as if Paul has been saying, Timothy, come soon, for all those reasons I've mentioned, but come soon because Demas has gone. And so it seems that Demas played a strategic part in the ministry and his departure had wounded Paul, but also there were practical gaps that needed to be filled. Now, what do we know about Demas? Well, in reality, not too much. We know that he's mentioned in Colossians 4 as an esteemed and intimate companion of Paul. We know that when Paul was writing the letter to uh, the Colossians from prison, Demas was there. Demas is also mentioned in the letter to Philemon as a fellow worker. And so he's been close with Paul. He's been with him in the work of the gospel. He's been alongside him. And he's significant enough in the ministry that he was mentioned in those letters. Paul had invested time in him, and so it was heartbreaking when Demas turned on Paul and left him and deserted him. He says, Demas has forsaken me. And actually, the language that Paul uses means this, that not only had Demas left, but that he had deserted Paul at the most difficult and inappropriate time. He'd left Paul at the very worst moment that he could have left. You know, maybe it was the difficulty and the suffering. Maybe it was the fact that Paul was arrested and going to lose his life and Demas just wasn't in for that. Maybe he was just not that committed anymore. But just like John describes in his letter about those who depart, so with Demas, he went out from us because he was not of us. Demas loved this present world, meaning all that the, the world could offer, all the ideals and the, the opinions and the values and the designs of this present passing sinful world, his heart had been drawn to them. And on the outside, he seemed to be ministering significantly, but his heart was not right. And when the time comes, he betrays and he deserts. You know, Jesus knew what it was to face that with Judas. And Paul follows in his master's steps in that way. And friends, the reality is that those who serve the Lord faithfully will know those who labor alongside them for a time. But when they decide they've had enough, they desert, they go. And it's so hard to deal with that. Demas loved the world more than the things of God. 1 John 2.15, if anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. As one has said, there is a love for this God-ignoring, God-denying, God-demeaning world that is irreconcilable with deep love for Jesus and with the ministry of exposing the world and witnessing to the world and rescuing from the world and, if possible, changing the world. The sad fact is more people leave Christ and leave the church and leave ministry and leave the hope of heaven because of love for the world than anything else. And in life and in ministry, there are those who are like Demas. You pour your life into them. You think that they are with you. They seem to be serving and running alongside you. You trust them, but then they cause you deep hurt and deep pain and confusion because suddenly they turn and the worldly mindset has gripped them and they desert you. And so it is in the life of the church. 
And friends, it never gets easy to deal with. It's horrible to face, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, and it leaves deep wounds. And there'll be friends in the ministry who'll let you down and never be there for you again. Even Christians you thought were friends can turn their backs on you and walk away. It's just hard. Paul found it hard. But it's then that we have to remember that though others may have turned on us, the Lord is with us. And that's where Paul sought his comfort. So Demas gone into the world. And then Crescens, verse 10, not much again is known about this man apart from the fact that he's faithful. Crescens had gone to Galatia, obviously a capable man. Galatia was an area that Paul administered so powerfully on each of his missionary journeys. And each time the gospel had been proclaimed, churches had been planted, leaders set in place. And so for Crescens to be there, he must have been a strong man in the faith to serve amongst the churches where also there were great threats from false teachers. And so he's doing a strategic work. And I think that Christians represents those servants of Christ who get on with the task faithfully, often behind the scenes. You know, they're not massively known. They're not big names. Many have never heard of them, but God sees. And he knows and he will reward them in due course. As one says, they are the quiet, unknown heroes who come along in spiritual maturity and strength to stand behind the work and to do the unseen work, faithful in doing their duty and are content to be unknown. You know, those who are like that in the church of Jesus Christ are invaluable. They play a vital role and eternity will reveal their significance. That's Crescens. And then you've got Titus, verse 10. And faithful Titus, well, we know more about Titus, and it says here that he's gone to Dalmatia. Now, if you were to read through the New Testament, Titus appears 13 times, and uh, we know that one of Paul's letters is to Titus. But Titus had a particular ministry. So Paul would go, and he would evangelize an area under the Lord and uh, plant works and begin to establish works, but then Titus would go into newly planted churches and he would help build them up and establish leaders and strengthen those courses so that they could go on and serve the law. And when Paul wrote his letter to Titus, he was on Crete. And Paul speaks of him as a son in the faith and tasks him with a, appointing elders in each city. And so Titus is a builder. He could go into a work, he could frame it, he could build it up in strength, and he'd served with Paul for years, and there was a trust, and there was an intimacy in their friendship and fellowship. And in our text here, Titus has done the work in Crete, and he's now headed to Dalmatia. Uh, if you're wondering where that is, that's uh, just north of Macedonia, opposite Italy. And Romans 15 said that Paul had previously preached the gospel in that region, and so again, Titus was going to go and do that work of follow-up working together to strengthen the churches, to build up leaders. He was an equipper. And we need men like that. We need those who can build up and strengthen and train and direct churches in a biblical direction. We need the Christians who are faithful behind the scenes, but we also need those like Titus who can move things forward, different roles, different gifts, but all part of the gospel work with Paul. And then you've got Luke, verse 11. Now, interestingly, there are those who say that the way that 
Paul writes here. It's as though it's a, a negative thing. You know, only Luke is with me. But it's not negative regarding Luke. Luke's a faithful companion. Luke is one who has faithfully remained with Paul in all that was happening. And even though Crescens and Titus and Tychicus were, were going for good reason, you know, when, when a team like that shrinks, it can be hard to deal with. It can be disappointing. But Luke was there. And Luke had a vital role. And, you know, he's only mentioned two other times in the New Testament. In Colossians 4, he's called the beloved physician. And in Philemon, he's called a fellow worker of Paul. But never underestimate the influence of Luke. You know, Luke is far greater than just the mentions of his name. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. And I'm sure many of you know that that's the longest gospel. He also wrote Acts. And so when you put those together, 52 chapters of the New Testament were penned by this beloved physician under the inspiration of the Spirit, recording the life of Jesus, and then also the life in advance of the early church. But even still, he was humble, and he was there for Paul, and he was faithfully with him in so many different situations and circumstances. He was involved in some of the missionary journeys, he was with Paul when Paul was shipwrecked in Acts 27. He was with him when Paul was in prison. You know, when you read through Acts, often, as Luke writes, when speaking of Paul's travels, he says, we went, includes himself. And he never sought prominence only to serve the Lord and to be a fellow worker with Paul in the gospel and to serve him as well. And also you see the Lord's kindness. You know, Luke's profession as a physician, a doctor, would be invaluable to Paul. You know, Paul, who endured being beaten and stoned and whipped and shipwrecked and so much other suffering, Paul needed a friend like that. Luke was not necessarily a preacher, but he was indispensable. He was invaluable. He was there for Paul, and he was a vital writer used of the Holy Spirit. But it is highlighting the fact that only Luke was left. And so Paul needed reinforcements to carry on the work. And it is amazing that Paul, even in the dungeon, even facing death, is laboring for the gospel. He is still committed to the work, even though his earthly time is nearly done. One explains there were not enough reapers, perhaps not even a sufficient number to provide adequately for the spiritual needs of the believers who were still in Rome and so Paul needs reinforcements. But you know, you think of Luke, and service of the Lord is enriched when you have friends in the work like Luke. They're trustworthy. They're committed. They're loyal. Paul could share anything with him. And they shared so much together. They were together all the time, and Luke was available. He was dependable. He wouldn't let Paul down, and he was willing to do the simple thing. And even though he was a, a godly man and educated and gifted, even though he was being used to write Scripture, he was content to come alongside Paul and give his life in service to his needs. A faithful companion. And then you've got Mark. Verse 11, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now, this is a really significant point because there had been a time when Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Many of you will know what happened. In Acts 13, things got difficult on that journey. 
and Mark abandoned them. He walked away. He went back on his commitment. And Paul didn't suffer those like that, especially when there was so much work to be done. He just did not have time for that. If you weren't all in, then you were a hindrance. And so when John Mark left, Paul felt, well, he was unreliable. He's untrustworthy, unsuited for any further service. You know, by the way, it shows us that fallen and redeemed people do let each other down, even in ministry. But around seven years later, Paul and Barnabas are about to go out on another missionary journey. And Barnabas, who is the great encourager, he wants to give Mark another opportunity. And he wants to take Mark, but Paul is resolutely set against that. And so in Acts 15, there is this deep disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Mark, so much so that they separate, they split. And so Paul takes Silas and Barnabas takes Mark. Mark had been the cause of the division. Barnabas thought Mark had learned and changed, but Paul still had serious doubts and did not want to partner with someone who had proven unreliable in the past. And you think, well, how can that ever be reconciled? Well, you fast forward around 12 years, and there's Paul in prison in Rome. Who is with him? Mark. Obviously, he had proven himself and reconciled with Paul, and now they're together, so much so that Paul mentions him in Colossians 4 and Philemon. After that initial problem, 20 years later, Mark has proven faithful and useful for ministry, for service. Do you know, it is a wonderful joy in the ministry to see those who maybe have stumbled early on be brought through to restoration and faithful service. And even though it can take a time and takes patience, the Lord does build up the weak. And he does make them strong in him. And those who maybe were unreliable and undependable in the past, by God's grace, can be made into strong pillars in the work. Because the Lord deals graciously with all manner of people and knits them together, demonstrating that it's him. It's him who does this. Him who puts these things in place. And so you have Mark, once unreliable, but now useful for ministry, reconciliation, serving alongside one another. And then I'll ask for you as we draw things together, Tychicus. He says, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. You know, he's another faithful co-worker for the gospel. I mentioned in Acts 20, accompanying Paul to Jerusalem, Tychicus had responsibility for taking the offering for the poor saints there. So he's trustworthy. And he's mentioned in Ephesians 6, Colossians 4, and Titus 3. And it seems that Tychicus had this role to deliver the letters that Paul wrote. So he's a messenger. And when you look at the original text, it conveys that Paul is about to send Tychicus to Ephesus. And so uh, the, the common understanding is that he would probably be the one who would take this second letter to Timothy and deliver it to him. And so he had to be a faithful man to deliver the word. These letters were vital. You see, Timothy had to get this letter. He had to know what God expected of him. He had to know the urgency with which he was to come to Paul. And so it's all on Tychicus. He can't lose that letter. He's got to take it. And so he must have been a man who could have been trusted with authority and responsibility. One who could be trusted with undertaking this role of delivering the letters, delivering the word where it needed to go. 
And you know, in the gospel work, we need those who are able to organize and deliver and facilitate getting the word out, whether it's in literature or letters or you know, online ministry. I think of those involved with something like Evangelical Press Missionary Trust, getting gospel literature out in Russian and French. And I think of them are doing that Tychicus role. Those who facilitate getting the message to the people. And we need that. We need that in the life of the church. And so Tychicus. And then Carpus, verse 13. This brother in Troas. And Paul must have been with him at some stage. And, you know, he's saying to Timothy, when you come, get Mark but then I need you to go to Troas. Why? Because I've left my cloak there and the books and the parchments. Now, some have suggested that the house of Carpus may have been the place where the church met in Troas. But it's likely that Paul stayed with this man in his household. And so we see that Carpus was available to receive the servants of the Lord and to open his home to them. And you know, the gospel cause needs those who care for physical needs, who are given to hospitality, who take care of the practical things. And Paul had to depend on those brethren for the basic things in life. And so we rejoice in the, the messengers of the Lord who go and have that public ministry, but we also rejoice in the Lord's people who use their homes to show hospitality and kindness so that that work can go on. Each role is vital. Now you say, well, why did Paul leave his cloak there? Why did he want his cloak? Well, simply winter was coming. And these cloaks, they were heavy garments made out of wool and they'd have a, a hole where you put your head through and you could wrap yourself in them to keep warm and to stop from getting wet, all those things. He needed it in those terrible conditions in the dungeon. You know, I was reminded of William Tyndale. A year before William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake for giving us the Bible in English, he wrote from his prison just north of Brussels. And this is what he said. He said, I beg your lordship that if I'm to remain here through the winter, you will request to have the kindness to send me the commissary from the goods of mine which he has, a warmer coat, for this which I've got is very thin." I'd like a piece of cloth, too, to patch up my leggings. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent that they will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time here in study. So there's a great similarity between someone like Tyndale and what Paul is asking for. And you say, well, why were they left there? Well, some say that Paul was arrested in Troas and he was hauled away before he had time to gather his belongings. And so he needed his cloak. He needed these scrolls, some of which may have been Old Testament books. Some may have been letters that he received and copies kept. But you know what always strikes me? The point was that Paul had not finished reading and writing and studying even though he was in the dungeon. It shows that closeness to the Lord at the end of your life doesn't remove the need or the desire to be in the word and to be spiritually nourished. You know, you might say, well, you know, if, if I was like Paul and I was about to die and I was going to see Jesus, why would I try to, to know more or relearn anything or see anything? You know, I'm going to know even as I am known in a very short time, so why bother? 
Well, because reading and thinking of the Scripture and spiritual teaching from the Word is how God speaks to us and how He makes Himself known to us, how He nourishes us and strengthens us for living and for dying. And so even though Paul's in the dungeon, he wants to be in the Word and he wants to draw close to the Lord in that way. And then lastly, Alexander the coppersmith, verses 13 to 15. So he's seen faithful ones, and we see another unfaithful one. Now, this Alexander is distinct from some of the others mentioned in the New Testament. He's a metal worker. He's a coppersmith. Possibly he made idols. But he did Paul much harm. And such was his ongoing influence that Timothy needed to be on his guard against him. Some say that he was based in Ephesus, that he'd done Paul harm there in the past, and he was an ongoing threat to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. Others say, well, no, he was in Rome, and he'd been involved in opposing Paul at his trial, and Timothy had to be careful when he came because it was likely that he would face him. Now, wherever he was, it is clear that he had wounded Paul and that he hated Paul and set himself against Paul. And you say, well, how? What had he done? He greatly resisted our words. He was opposed to the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. It may not have been physical harm caused to Paul, but such was the opposition of this man in standing against the truth that it caused Paul much mental and emotional and spiritual harm. He was a dangerous opponent and a tool of the enemy. And Paul says something very sobering here. He says, may the Lord repay him according to his works. It's a future prophetic statement that will certainly come to pass. The Lord will repay him. Paul knew that no sinner ever gets away with their sin. That no person who opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ will ultimately succeed. If you oppose the Lord, if you oppose his word, if you oppose his cause, God will repay you. Paul had written that in Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Quotes there from Deuteronomy 32. Just like his master, the Lord Jesus, Paul, when reviled, did not revile in return, but committed himself to God and trusted that God would vindicate him. You know, Alexander must have been a relentless enemy. And sadly, there are those like that who do appear from time to time in gospel ministry and those who take their stand against the Lord and against his truth, against his cause and against his people, and they do cause harm. And we will have those who oppose us and attack us and try to undo what we do, who want to ridicule and harm and make us appear stupid and slander us. But it shouldn't surprise us because the Lord Jesus had them, Paul had them, and so do those who faithfully follow in their steps. Do you know, in all of these different people, faithful, unfaithful, we see that there are friends and there are foes in gospel work and ministry. And one of the great joys in the Christian life is to serve the Lord with brothers and sisters, to know those friendships that are grounded in Christ. And when we have them, they're precious. They're unlike anything that this world can offer. And you know, Jesus always intended that the believer's relationship with him would be the binding factor in our relationships with each other. 
And those relationships, when they are right and when they are good and when they are Christ-centered, they magnify him. And they magnify his grace. And often we find ourselves in gospel work, friends with people that in the world we would never have met. We would never have been with. But the Lord has brought us together to serve him. And even though people are fickle, they are fallen and fallible, Paul cherished those friendships. As one says, Christ did not die to create isolated worshipping individuals. He died to create Christ-exalting friendships. That is, he died and rose again to create the church. And that's what's on Paul's heart and mind, even as his life draws to its close. But you know, in all of that, one thing is true. One thing is vital that we must not miss tonight. Jesus is the only totally reliable friend for sinners. He is the only flawless, truly satisfying friend. And in verses 17 to 18, Paul says, it is the Lord who stood with me. It is the Lord who strengthened me. It is the Lord who will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory. No earthly friend can do that for you. No earthly friend can deliver you from every evil work and preserve you for the eternal kingdom. There is only one friend who can do that. Only one friend who is always there and will be with you even at the very end and for all eternity, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stood with Paul and he stands by all his people to strengthen them and lead them through. And it is he alone that gives us real hope, even in the very darkest days. Not only of, of ministry, but just in living life for him and for his glory. It is only in the Lord that we can endure. It is only in the Lord that we have what we need to complete the work that he has given us to do. It is only in the Lord that we have that hope that one day we'll be with him forever and delivered from all the highs and lows and troubles of this life. And friends, you know, ultimately we need him. That's what it comes down to. We need him. And it's when we're close to him that the relationships around us grow and develop in the right way. And so as we leave this place tonight, may it be that our purpose will be to get near to the Lord and to strengthen our relationships one with the other in him. But we need to be close to him, our true friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.